Welcome to the QNS Podcast. Each week we take a look back at some news in Queens. I'm Angelica Acevedo. And I'm Jacob Kay. Today on the show, a conversation with longtime Long Island City City Councilman. That was cool, right? Jimmy Van Brammer. Jimmy Van Brammer was born in Queens to a working class family. He went to William Cullen Bryant High School in Astoria and didn't go too far for college. He graduated from St. John's University. <gasps> Sorry. So did Angelica. Yes. <laughs> he spent a big chunk of his professional career working for the Queens Public Library as its chief external affairs officer. And in his life as a city council member, he says that the issue has always stayed close to his heart. Speaking of city council, he was first elected to New York City's legislative body in 2009. He was re-elected in 2013 and again in 2017, which, because of term limits, will be his last term. Most recently, Van Brammer ran to be the next Queensborough president in the upcoming special election, but he dropped out for reasons which he'll explain in a bit. In fact, let's just get into it. Here's our conversation with City Councilmember Jimmy Van Brammer. Thank you so much for joining us, Councilman Jimmy Van Brammer. Thank you for having me. Let's dive right in. You ended your campaign even though I you know many people thought that you were a front runner. And I also saw this really great um, op-ed that you did for the Queen's Daily Eagle, where you talked a little bit about why you decided to end that race. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So obviously it came as a surprise to a lot of people, but needless to say, was not a surprise to me and to my husband and some members of my family because we've been dealing with my mother getting older and dealing with some serious but not life-threatening issues associated with aging that lots of families go through. And it was not only a thing that made me less focused on my political career, for obvious reasons, because I was more focused on my mother and her health. But, you know, when someone you you love is going through a very serious issue like that and your time and attention is directed towards that, it sort of makes you think about your whole life and and ways that maybe you didn't anticipate. And so, you know, you sort of uh, are like, uh, what 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 matters in life? You know, what's really important? And and maybe the thing that you thought was the most important thing in your life is a little bit less important in this particular moment in time. And politics is a very difficult business to be in. Running for office is incredibly difficult. And you need to be all in and 150% committed to every single aspect of that. And, and when your heart and soul is sort of tugged away from the fight every day in, in politics, you know, it makes you question whether or not you should do it. And so I obviously was wanting to do this for a long time, was in the process of doing it, but a combination of a million factors. But, but starting with my mother's issues associated with aging made me re- actually reassess my whole life as well. And so... For me, at this particular moment in time, I thought best to suspend our campaign and and focus on both my mother's health and wellness, but also my health and wellness and and life in general. And so, you know, this was the right decision for me at this moment. And speaking a little bit more about that, I found it very commendable that you even mentioned the toll that it takes 
on public officials to be you know, public officials. Uh, why do you think it's important for people to keep that in mind, especially nowadays, you know, with social media and so much easy access? Yeah. Well, look, I think the there's a buzzword in today's politics, and that is accountability. Rightfully so, people want to hold elected officials and people in positions of power accountable. And I think that's actually right. But I also think that we've gotten into an extremely toxic space when it comes to elected officials and and the work of politics and government. And social media plays a role in that, but it's not limited to it. I think that that most people appreciate the fact that most elected officials give their whole life and whole being to this work, that they do in fact sacrifice a lot of time with their families, and that the work follows you 24-7. And yet I think there are some who do not, and I think there are some who in this moment, partly driven by Trump and partly driven by social media, believe that it is their sort of inherent right to uh, just viciously attack and even in the most personal ways, elected officials and people they disagree with. And and I think that's that's something that takes a toll, you know, not just on a, a local elected official like myself, but I think even you're seeing in the presidential race, the United States presidential race, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, you know, those really deeply hurtful personal attacks, even if they don't see all of them, because I doubt that Elizabeth Warren is, is rifling through her Twitter feed, but... Her supporters see it, and I'm sure it filters up to her at some level. And it's just demeaning and it's vicious. And I think while I may disagree with other elected officials, you may like some, you may dislike some, you know, there should be a baseline of, of respect that I think is actually gone from a lot of our political discourse. And obviously that's sort of fed by the person who occupies the White House, who's sort of debased all norms and and so we're in this really strange period and um, it is deeply personal when people disagree with you they don't just disagree with you on the merits of an issue they don't just talk policy differences they actually want to attack you personally and and that's all of us uh, in this business right now and and I think it's difficult and I've heard a lot of elected officials who have been in doing this work for a long time, that it is much more difficult today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, those who've been in this work. It is incredibly difficult. And so I I applaud people who, who run for office and serve. I think a lot of people who are running don't know how awful it can be, but, <laughs> but I think that it is still a really valid and important form of public service. And I think it's really difficult public service, but you know, those who do it, Again, we should hold them accountable. We should disagree with them when we need to. But we should also find ways to validate the sacrifices that they make. Yeah. What do you think are some ways that, I guess, even the media, right, should be promoting a better sort of discourse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to do. But I think, you know, calling out the the incredible vicious negativity that we see online uh, and and having more folks call that out and make an issue of it. You sort of started to see it in the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign against, you know, his opponents where the opponents, and I don't 
lay this at the feet of Bernie Sanders, but some of his supporters, of course, have been incredibly vicious towards uh, uh, Buttigieg and Warren, and and they raised it on the debate stage, right? They actually started to talk about it and elevate it to an incredibly high level for a debate stage for a United States presidential uh, candidate to be talking about it. And I saw just yesterday, uh, Bernie Sanders was asked about the attacks on Elizabeth Warren, and, uh, and he said they're just awful. But, you know, I think there's got to be a way for the people who are uh, also feeling very strongly about your candidate of choice or the issue that you're pushing to actually push back and say, no, this is actually a form of bullying, right? This is actually just really awful. Um, so I think that's maybe going to start to happen more. I hope it's going to happen more, but but I don't know. I think, you know, uh, social media is just an incredibly toxic space. So while we're still on the subject of the Queensboro president race, I remember reading your op-ed, and the first question that popped into my head was, I wonder who he's voting for. And I don't know if you've said anything or if you've made your decision or anything already, but... You know, I have not made an endorsement, and I I don't know if I will be making an endorsement. A couple of the candidates have asked me to endorse them, and uh, I've met with and spoken to uh, two of them. But, uh, you know, this is such a personal decision and a, and, a, and a very difficult personal thing. So making an endorsement was the furthest thing from my mind, yeah. you know, and so I, I, I still lean against that. And, um, and a lot of them are your colleagues, right, in the city council? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my name is also on the ballot. Uh, so <laughs> I reserve the right to vote for myself. Oh. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll see what the future holds. You know, I'll, I'll certainly continue to talk to some of my colleagues who are uh, in the race. But, you know, at this moment, lean against weighing in. And do you think that you'll be back anytime soon? Or? It, for a borough president? Mm-hmm. You know, I think... Uh, I, first of all, let me just say, I saw a part of Elizabeth Warren's press conference today when she was talking to the media about leaving the presidential race, and they asked her all these same questions. Are you going to uh, uh, endorse anyone, and are you gonna, what are you doing next? And, and she's a very smart woman, which is why one of the reasons I supported her for president. But she, she said, you know what, everyone, let's just take a breath, take a moment, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot going on. You know, I'm not thinking about, you know, all of this just yet because there's so many other things that I have to take care of, close the campaign down, make sure all the staff are paid, taken care of. And she's like, at some point I may get there, but, like, let's all just take a moment, take a breath, step back. So uh, for me, that's sort of what I've been doing. Um, I, you know, and obviously we'll have to, you know, see how my mom you know, does and progresses and in uh, all that she's dealing with, but uh, and how that impacts me continuously. But I do love public service, um, and I I 
really have enjoyed being a city council member. Being an elected official is a privilege, it really is. I mean, it's just an amazing way to experience people, your neighborhood, your, the institutions that you care about. You are able to help people and develop a really interesting relationship with your constituents. So I've not ruled out running for office uh, again in the future. Um, don't know if that would be Queensborough president, but uh, um, but you know I want to stay active. I want to stay involved, um, but I want to do it in a way that feels good and feels right, and um, and that allows me to be happy because as I have you know gotten a little bit older and and uh, realized that you know this thing called life is finite and and you, you know tomorrow is not guaranteed and and even if you you live a really long life you know you could be diagnosed with dementia or alzheimer's and who knows when that happens and who knows when your ability to to fully enjoy your life changes so i want to be sure that that i'm uh, that i'm happy and that i'm i'm and that I'm sure if I do it again, that I'm sure that I want to do it again, right? If that makes sense. Um, and and so we'll just have to see. Well, even before that, right, you still have about two years left in the city I council, do. right? Are, what are like some big things that you want to make sure you do before? I was elected in 2009 talking an awful lot about the things that have always mattered to me, right? I do care about quality of life. Uh, in the neighborhoods that I represent. I care about helping people and constituent services. Those aren't necessarily the biggest, sexiest things that we talk about when we talk about politics today, but they matter. They matter to people's lives and the everyday experience of your neighborhood and your community. So we'll remain focused on that work. And I also talked a lot about libraries and public libraries are my life's work. Uh, obviously, I worked for the Queen's Public Library for 11 years before I got elected, and now I've been the chair of the committee. Right now, we have record funding for our public libraries and culture and the arts in the city of New York. Really important to me that we maintain those gains and that when I leave the city council and I'm no longer the chair of the Cultural Affairs and Libraries Committee, that we've left our public libraries and our cultural institutions as strong as they've ever been. Right now that is the case and we certainly want to continue that for the next two budget cycles that I'm that I'll be a part of. And you know, when you get to be a council member for 10 years, you've obviously funded a lot of capital projects. There are four new schools rising in my district. I want to see as many of them finished and open while I'm the council member. Same with a number of really great parks projects that we've funded. So those are sort of the joyful moments, right? When you when you fund something and then you break ground on it and then they're building it and then it opens and you're like, wow, we've been able to actually bring this to the children of uh, whatever neighborhood that park or that school or that library is opening it. Well, yeah, there is a very, <laughs> there's a bunch of very big issues um, going on. And I personally was definitely gonna ask you about um, Sunnyside Yards master plan, right? That came mm -hmm. out yesterday, I'm sure you saw. I did. I, yeah, and I remember you and AOC did a joint letter mm -hmm. a couple months ago for the EDC yep. in regards to the plan, like the way that it was playing out their outreach. What do you think about the plan now and specifically, you know, how they said that 100% of the housing is going to be affordable? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, my first thought about Sunnyside Yard is for everyone to realize that this is a, 
a vision. This is a plan for something that even if it were to ever be fully realized, would literally take decades and decades. Right? Many of us won't even be on this planet if, uh, if and when Sunnyside Yards is realized. Having said that, look, it is important for the city of New York to plan for its future. It is important to engage in exercises like this to envision what could be. You know, I think there were some folks who were heard in this process and the plan changed in some meaningful ways. But I think there are an awful lot of people who still feel like their voices were not heard. As to the plan itself, I mean, my... Look, I grew up uh, to the north of Sunnyside Yards in a real working-class part of Astoria. I grew up in a poor working-class family. And and now I live just south of the yard in Sunnyside Gardens. So I've lived my entire 50 years either on the north or the south of Sunnyside Yard. And what I don't want to see is for these neighborhoods to be radically altered and changed. And I still don't see how you could affect that kind of massive growth and that kind of density and not materially change the character of Astoria just to the north. And and that has always had me uneasy about the plan, um, and and I remain just as uneasy about the plan, in in terms of how it it can and I think likely will affect the neighborhoods around it. So, you know, I, I I'm not sure it's ever truly going to happen, and and I'm not sure that it should. But what we are all reacting to now is simply a you know an exercise really. Uh, and now we have a vision. We have the city's vision, EDC's vision, and some people who live and work in the neighborhood's vision. But there are a lot of other people who have yet to sort of weigh in on what their vision is for it. And, you know, I just think you're talking about so much change. And affordable housing is was very much needed. Obviously, to come out of the gate and say that it's 100% affordable is is a really good thing. The rubber meets the road, of course, when you talk about what levels of affordability and what level of subsidy, and and there are lots of more complicated questions that come as a result of that and that follow that, and those questions aren't going to be answered for years. We're asking everybody that comes on, especially about the progressive wave in Queens. As you said yourself, you are a progressive. What do you think are specific aspects of someone's politics, of someone's policies that make them a progressive? Well, I mean, I suppose many different progressives would have many different answers to that. I mean, I I will say that for me, you know, I come from a poor working class family where my stepfather who raised me was a janitor and cleaned hallways and bathrooms for a living. And my mother was a supermarket worker and was a, a meat wrapper in key food and was a cashier at Pathmark. Uh, I know what it's like to not have any money. I know what it's like to not be able to pay the rent. Uh, and and I know the inherent unfairness in all of that. Also, as a gay man, I come you know from a place where you know me and many others like myself were 
uh, ostracized and went through really difficulties. So fundamentally, you know, being a progressive, being a progressive is about you know building power for people who traditionally have been robbed of their power, uh, have had their power stolen from them, and and yeah, fundamentally chipping away, if not being even more aggressive, at ending a system that that really benefits a very privileged few at the expense of the vast majority of people who have actually very little. I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of Jeff Bezos or uh, Bill Gates or Bloomberg, you know, a human being who's worth $60 billion, a human being who's worth $80 billion, a human being who's worth $140 billion. And then you realize the vast majority of people in this world make what, less than $30,000 a year, right? The vast majority of people in this world actually make less than that. And uh, someone told me recently that Mike Bloomberg makes $107 million a day. And it's something that none of us can even imagine. And that is, I, you know, I endorsed Elizabeth Warren, um, but, you know, I agree with Bernie Sanders when he says, you know, we don't really even need to have billionaires, you know, like, and and the reason that I believe that is because when you have people with that much, and you then you have so many people with almost nothing, right, who like literally the amount of families, not just in like other countries, but like in Queens today, right, where the, the mother or the father or the grandmother, whoever's taking care of those children, literally doesn't have enough money in their pocket to buy food for their family, right? And, you know, we should all be, like, expressing moral outrage at that, right? Not just believing in some kind of, like, economic Darwinism, you know, where you're like, well, if they if they got to be worth $60 billion, they must have earned it, right? They're smarter than the rest of us. They worked harder than the rest of us. There's a mother, you know, who has three kids who's, you know, struggling because she literally, literally you know, has like $2.20 to her name. Like, then somehow, you know, if she had made better decisions or if she was smarter or if she was better, like, she wouldn't be in that position. Like, I don't believe in that. That is, like, fundamentally, like, morally unjust. And and so, for me, being a progressive it is about that driving your politics and, and your belief in serving in government. I mean, obviously... There's also an element for me, you know, that has been uh, about being anti-establishment and bringing more people into the system and allowing more people to challenge the system and not having systems rigged to exclude people um, who would like to to claim their rightful seats and, and their power. Uh, all of that you know, is involved. And I, I just want to say this, you know, about the movement to the extent that the, there is this thing in Queens where when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got elected, right, that was tantamount to, you know, a, like a Richter scale 10.0 earthquake, right? Just, just totally shook the entire borough, right? It's entire political structure. And just like with any massive earthquake, right, there's like a series of aftershocks, 
including some other big earthquakes. And I think that's what we're still experiencing in Queens, right? That was a massive earthquake when AOC beat Joe Crowley. And then I think you've seen other things happening, right? Obviously the Caban Cats race, you know, some of the other localized races, you know, Jessica Ramos, Catalina Cruz. And, and, and I think like the plates are still shifting, right? Like there's still so much happening. And obviously now there's an explosion of district leader races and county committee races and all sorts of uh, places where democracy is breaking out, you know, and, and that is good, but it also creates a lot of uh, instability, right? And there's a lot of uh, um, people who are still kind of adjusting to the new norm and the new normal that is politics in Queens. And as someone who ran against the machine multiple times and who has never uh, been endorsed by the machine in a competitive race, um, you know, I, I support all of these challenges to the, the status quo. Um, but as with the, the Bernie Sanders you know, campaign and any movement, I hope that it is as inclusive as possible Right, and has um, the ability to to bring people in, and uh, and not you know shut them out. Um, I heard a great quote this week, and I'm sure it's been used by many many people. But you know there are two kinds of of pastors: uh, one who looks out onto the uh, the parishioners in the church, and and looks for the heretics to root out. But then there's another um, pastor who looks out on the prisoners and looks for the potential converts. And, and for me, that is like really instructive, right? Because I want to be part of a movement that doesn't look for the people who we need to root out, but instead looking um, towards everyone as someone who we might be able to bring in. Right, and, uh, and so I hope that the progressive left adopts that, that spirit. Are you looking for something to do this week? Because we got you covered. We got you covered. Mm-hmm. Dive headfirst into Holy Hell, a three-day festival with three stages of sinful performance art, gluttony, and divine comedy. Starts on Thursday, March 12th with a hot wing eating contest, and in later days there'll be a comedy show and a bull riding performance. Sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. It runs through the 20th at the Flux Factory in Long Island City, and again, it's called Holy Hell, and it's also free. Nick McManus has taken a lot of Polaroid photos right here in Queens. And now, the project for living artists in Woodside is putting them on display. The gallery is open from March 13th until the 15th, and it's free. On March 14th from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Advanced Masonic Temple in Long Island City, it's a girl's day in. You can pot flower pots with flowers and paint them. There will be treats, a bunch of nice people to meet, and you can also bring your friends. All the materials and the food are included in the price of the ticket, which is $25. There will be a prize at the door and also a raffle that you can enter to win some fun prizes. You can purchase your tickets at potandpaint.eventbrite.com. That's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. To catch more Queen's news, make sure to go to qns.com. 
And be on the lookout on Friday, March 13th, we're going to bring you a special episode for a special election. We're going to break down the whole Queensboro president's race. Early voting for the special election will begin on March 14th. That's the day after we'll release the episode. But we'll have all the information about where you can vote early and all the candidates who are, you know, trying to get your vote. Be sure to tune in. This show was co-hosted and co-produced by me, Angelica, and Jacob Kay, who also edited and makes the show. Our reporters are Dina Bakal, Max Parrott, Bill Perry, Carlotta Muhammad, Jacob, and me. Our editor is Zach Goelb, music by Blue Doll Sessions, published by Schnapps Media.